The following is a conversation with Ronald Sullivan, a professor at Harvard Law School known for taking on difficult and controversial cases. He was on the head legal defense team for the Patriots football player Aaron Hernandez in his double murder case. He represented one of the Gina Six defendants and never lost the case during his years in Washington, D.C.'s Public Defender Services Office. In 2019, Ronald joined the legal defense team of Harvey Weinstein, a film producer facing multiple charges of rape and other sexual assault. This decision met with criticism from Harvard University students, including an online petition by students seeking his removal as faculty dean of Winthrop House. Then, a letter supporting him, signed by 52 Harvard Law School professors, appeared in the Boston Globe on March 8, 2019. Following this, the Harvard administration succumbed to the pressure of a few Harvard students and announced that they will not be renewing Ronald Sullivan's dean position. This created a major backlash in the public discourse over the necessary role of universities in upholding the principles of law and freedom at the very foundation of the United States. This conversation is brought to you by Brooklyn and Sheets, Wine Access Online Wine Store, Monk Pack Low Carb Snacks, and Blinkist app that summarizes books. Click their links to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that the free exchange of difficult ideas is the only mechanism through which we can make progress. Truth is not a safe space. Truth is humbling and being humbled can hurt. But this is the role of education, not just in the university, but in business and in life. Freedom and compassion can coexist, but it requires work and patience. It requires listening to the voices and to the experiences unlike our own. Listening, not silencing. I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I tried to have fun with these, even though my voice is genetically incapable of sounding like I'm having fun. (laughs) I do give you timestamps, so go ahead and skip if you do not happen to have the patience of a saint, but I do try to make it so they're at least like somewhat interesting to listen to. But either way, please do click the links in the description for the sponsors. It really is the best way to support this podcast. This episode is sponsored by Brooklyn and Sheets. I am not an expert on comfort, I've often throughout my life slept on the carpet without anything but a jacket and jeans, but these sheets have been amazing. In general, for many years, I've mostly lived a minimalist life in the things I eat, in the content I consume, in the possessions that I actually have, material possessions, in the things I have hung up on my wall, which is usually nothing, except maybe a picture of Feynman and Einstein. And when you have a minimalist life like that, you could really appreciate quality. I think there's two kinds of products. Of course, it's a Venn diagram, but the first category is the ones you get to show to the world, and the other is the ones you get to make yourself feel happy, like internally, intrinsic versus extrinsic, I guess. Again, it's probably significant overlap, but I do appreciate quality. I do appreciate products that make me feel good. These sheets are that. So it's nice. I will never be dependent on these things. If I do feel myself becoming dependent, I will let go of them. Anyway, go to brooklinen.com and use code LEX to get 25 bucks off when you spend $100 or more, plus get free shipping. That's brooklinen.com and enter code LEX. 
This podcast is also sponsored by Wine Access Online Store with expertly selected wine. They make it easy for anyone, i.e. me, from novice to expert, to pick and order the most delicious wines from around the world. Their team tastes over 20,000 bottles a year and handpicks only the best for their customers. There's something profoundly joyful about me imagining the tasting of 20,000 bottles. I personally had a lot of joyful experiences uh, drinking wine because uh, at least for me, wine has been a thing that brings close friends and family together over a great meal. So I kind of think there's several categories of alcohol. Wine is like about sharing love with friends. And then there's like the other side of the spectrum, which is tequila, where every single experience I've had where tequila was involved, I've regretted. <laughs> so if you choose wine, you're choosing love. If you're choosing tequila, you're choosing danger, but sometimes a little danger is fun. So, but most of the time you wanna stick with wine, you wanna stick with wine access. Let me recommend, this is where I try to sound smart and sophisticated, the 2018 Radio Silence Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley. It's definitely a good one and it's affordable given the high, high quality. So get 20% off your first order when you go to wineaccess.com slash Lex. The discount will be applied at checkout. That's wineaccess.com slash Lex to see my wine picks and to get the discount. And I hope you and I, dear listener, will share wine together one day. This episode is also brought to you by Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars that contains just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and there are only 140 calories. It's actually interesting to think about what kind of fuel is needed when you're on a low-carb diet when you all of a sudden step up the performance needs. So like if I usually run, you know, five or six miles here and there, do a few push-ups and pull-ups and so on. If I all of a sudden have to run like an ultra marathon, which, which I hope I don't have to, but I very well might need to once I meet David. There's quite a few people that say you could do the ultra on continuing low carb, like ultra low carb. But there's also a lot of people that say, well, no, in these cases, even if you eat low carb, you need to load up on carbs. All that stuff, there's so many debates that are so confusing. I don't know what to make of it. I think I go back to the same thing I always go back to, which is you have to experiment on yourself and you have to listen to your body. Like, don't listen to a random guy on the internet. <laughs> listen to your body over that. Okay, get 20% off your first purchase of any MonkPack product by visiting monkpack.com and enter code LEX at checkout. If you don't like it for any reason, I, w I would personally first question your tastes, but MonkPack will not. They'll exchange the product or refund your money guaranteed. That's monkpack.com and enter code LEX. This episode is also supported by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. They've also started doing this weirdly amazing thing called Shortcasts, which summarizes podcasts. They have like a selection of podcasts and they summarize them. The ones they choose are like the really well-organized podcasts, but it's kind of fun to think about them trying to summarize like this podcast that I'm doing, or even like the crazier long-form podcast, like a Joe Rogan Experience kind of podcast. 
<laughs> Good luck trying to summarize that. Chimps, DMT, and aliens. There you go. That's a summary. I should work for Blinkist. I really actually enjoy this idea of hardcore summarization. Like some people listen to podcasts at like 2X or even more faster. Like there's a lot of value to that. Or even just like with Blinkist, summarizing books that are like huge into just like a few pages. I really think that's exceptionally valuable, but it also has to be coupled with actually reading long-form content or listening to long-form content as well. And I actually think there's space to listening to stuff at like 1X and pausing and giving your mind a chance to think. I really think there's power in silence. You know, you can call it boredom or whatever, but it's that meditative silence that you want to escape. There's an anxious desire to escape that silence. But if you resist that anxious desire, I think brilliant ideas come. So that's the value of long form content. But then the short form content is really valuable because you get condensed information. So you're maximizing on information with long form content, you're maximizing on the silence and the chance to think. Anyway, go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Ronald Sullivan. You were one of the lawyers who represented the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein in advance of a sexual assault trial. For this, Harvard forced you to step down as faculty deans, uh, you and your wife, of Winthrop House. Can you tell the story of this saga from uh, first deciding to represent Harvey Weinstein to the interesting, complicated events that followed? Yeah, sure. So I got a call one morning from a colleague at the Harvard Law School who uh, asked if uh, I would consent to taking a call from from Harvey. Uh, he wanted to meet me and uh, and chat with me about representing him. I said yes, and um, one thing led to another. Uh, I uh, drove out to Connecticut uh, where he was staying and met with him and some of his advisors. And then uh, a day or two later, I uh, decided to, to take the case. This would have been back in uh, January of 2019, uh, I, I believe. So the sort of cases, I, I have a very small practice. Most of my time is, is teaching and, and, and writing. Uh, but uh, I tend to take cases that most uh, deem to be uh, impossible. Uh, uh, I take the challenging sorts of cases. And and this was um, uh, fit the bill. It was quite challenging in the sense that uh, everyone had uh, prejudged the case. When I say everyone, I just mean the, the general sentiment in the public uh, uh, had the case prejudged, uh, even though the specific allegations did not regard uh, the any of the people in the um, in the New Yorker, that's the New Yorker article that sort of uh, uh, exposed uh, everything that was going on um, allegedly with, with with Harvey. So I decided to uh, to take the case, and uh, I did. 
Is there a philosophy behind you taking on these very difficult cases? Like, is it a set of principles? Is it just your love of the law? Or is it, is there like a set of principles why you take on the cases? Yeah, I, I do. I take on, I like to take on hard cases and I like to take on the cases that, uh, that uh, are with unpopular uh, defendants, unpopular clients. Um, and with respect to the latter, that's where Harvey Weinstein yes. fell. Yes. Uh, it's because uh, we need lawyers and good lawyers to take the unpopular cases uh, because that those sorts of cases determine what sort of criminal justice system we have. Uh, if we don't protect the rights and the liberties of those whom the society deems to be the least and the last, the unpopular client, then that's the, the camel's nose under the tent. If we let the camel's nose under the tent, the entire tent is going to collapse. That is to say, if we short circuit the rights of a client like Harvey Weinstein, then the next thing you know, someone will be at your door knocking it down and violating your rights. There's a there's a certain creep there with respect to um, the way in which the, the state will respect the civil rights and civil liberties of people. And, and these are the sorts of cases that that, that test it. So, you know, for example, um, there's a there, there was a young man many, many years ago named Ernesto Miranda. Um, by all accounts, he was not a likable guy. He was, a, you know, three time uh, knife thief and not a likable guy. But lawyers stepped up and took his case. And because of that, we now have the Miranda uh, warnings. You have the right to remain silent. That those those warnings that um, officers are, are are forced to give to people. Mm-hmm. So it is through these cases that we expect oftentimes the best values in our criminal justice system. So I, I, I proudly take on these sorts of cases in order to vindicate not only the individual rights of the person whom I'm representing, but the rights of citizens writ large, uh, who um, most of whom do not experience the criminal justice system. And it's partly because of lawyers who take on these sorts of cases and establish rules that protect us, uh, average, everyday, ordinary, concrete citizens. As From a psychological perspective, just you as a human, is there, is there fear? Is there stress from all the pressure? Because if you're facing, I mean, the whole point, a difficult case, especially in the latter that you mentioned of the going against popular opinion, you have the eyes of millions potentially looking at you with anger. Uh, as you try to defend, uh, you know, this, this set of laws that this country is built on? No, it doesn't stress me out particularly. <laughs> it, okay. uh, you know, it, it sort of comes with the, the territory. I try not to get uh, too excited in either direction. So a big part of my practice is uh, wrongful convictions. And I, uh, I've gotten uh, over 6,000 people out of prison who've been wrongfully incarcerated and a subset of those people have been convicted. And, you know, there are people who've been in jail 20, 30 uh, years who have gotten out. And those are the sorts of cases where people uh, praise you and, and, and that sort of thing. And so, look, I, I, I do uh, the work that I do. I'm proud of the work that I do. 
And in that sense, I'm uh, sort of a part-time Taoist. You know, the, the expression reversal is the movement yeah. of the Tao. Yeah. Uh, so I don't get too high. I don't get too low. Uh, I just try to do my work and, and represent people to the best of my ability. So one of the hardest cases of recent history would be the Harvey Weinstein in terms of popular opinion or unpopular opinion. So, well, if you continue on that line, uh, what was that? Where does that story take you of taking on this case? Yeah, so I, I, I took on the case, and then there was some uh, some uh, a few students at the college. So let me back up. I had yeah. an administrative post at Harvard College, which is a separate entity from the Harvard Law School. Harvard College is the undergraduate portion of Harvard University, and the law school is obviously the law school. And I uh, initially was appointed as master of one of the houses. We did a name change five or six years into it and and we're called faculty deans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the houses at Harvard are based on the college system of Oxford and, and, and Cambridge. So when uh, students go to Harvard after their first year, they're assigned to a particular house uh, or college, and that's where they live and eat and so forth. And these are undergraduate students. These are undergraduate students. So I was responsible for one of the the, the houses as, as its faculty dean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an administrative appointment at the college. And some students who didn't clearly didn't like Harvey Weinstein began to uh, protest uh, about the uh, representation. And from there, it uh, just mushroomed into one of the most craven, cowardly uh, acts by uh, any university in modern history. It's just a complete and utter repudiation of uh, academic freedom. Uh, and it is a decision that uh, Harvard certainly will live to regret. It's frankly, it's an embarrassment. Uh, we expect students to do what students do, and uh, and I encourage students to have their voices heard and to protest. Uh, I mean, that's what students do. Uh, what is vexing are the adults. Uh, uh, the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, uh, Claudine Gay. Uh, absolutely craven and cowardly. The dean of the college, same thing. Rakesh Karana, craven and cowardly. Uh, they um, capitulated to the loudest voice in the room and ran around afraid of nineteen-year-olds. Oh, nineteen-year-olds are upset. I, I, I need to. I need to do something. Yeah. And uh, it appeared to me that they so so desired the approval. Uh, of students that they were afraid to make uh, the tough decision and the right decision. It really could have been an important teaching exactly. moment at a teaching Harvard. moment, yeah. Very important teaching moment. So they, they forced you to step down from that uh, faculty dean position at the house. It, um, I would push back yeah. on the description a little bit. So, 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 so I, so I, I don't write the, the, um, you know, the references to the op-ed I did in the New York Times. Yeah. Harvard made a mistake by making me step down or cool. or something like that. So I, I don't write those things. Uh, I did not step down and, and refuse to step down. Uh, Harvard declined to renew my my, my, my contract. Gotcha. And, you know, and I made it clear that I, I was not uh, going to resign as a matter of, of, of principle and, and, and force them to um, do the, the cowardly act that they, in fact, uh, did. And, you know, the, 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 the worst thing about this— uh, they did uh, the college, uh, uh, Dean Gay and Dean Karana, uh, commissioned this survey. 
They've never done this before. Survey from the students, you know, how do you feel at Winthrop House? Yeah. And the funny thing about the survey is they never released the results. <laughs> Why did they never release the results? They never released the results because I would bet my salary that the results came back positive for me. And it didn't fit their narrative because most of the students were fine. Yes. Most of the students were fine. It was the, the loudest voice in the room. So they never released it. And, you know, I challenge them to this day. Release it. Yes. Release it. Yeah, but no. But, you know, they wanted to uh, uh, create this narrative. Uh, and um, when the data didn't support the narrative, then they just got got silent. Oh, we're, 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 we're not going to release it. The students demanded it. I demanded it. And they wouldn't release it because I am I, I just I just know in my heart of hearts that it it was um, uh, it came back in my favor that most students at Winthrop House said they were fine. Um, there was a group of students that weaponized a, a, a term uh, unsafe. They said we felt unsafe and they and they uh, bantied uh, this term about. Uh, but I'm again, I'm confident that that the majority of students at Winthrop House said they felt completely uh, fine and the, uh, felt safe and so forth. And the super majority, I am confident, either said, I feel great at, at Winthrop or, you know, I don't care one way or the other. And then there was some minority who had had a different view. But, um, you know, uh, lessons learned, uh, I um it was a, a wonderful opportunity at Winthrop. I met some amazing students over the uh, my 10 years as master and then faculty uh, dean. And I'm still in touch with a number of students, uh, some of whom are now my students at the at, at the law school. So uh, in the end, uh, I thought it was a, uh, it, it ended up being a great uh, experience. Uh, the national media was just wonderful in this, just wonderful. They uh, people wrote such wonderful articles and accounts and wagged their finger appropriately at Harvard, uh, uh, compared me to John Adams, which I don't think is an apt <laughs> comparison, but it's always great to, to read something like that. Uh, yeah. but, but anyway, that, that, that was the Harvard, uh, the Harvard, uh, versus Harvey, uh, situation. So that, that seems like a seminal mistake by Harvard and Harvard is one of the great universities in the world. And so sort of, its successes and its mistakes are really important for the world uh, as a beacon of like what, how we make progress. So what lessons for the bigger academia that get that's under fire a lot these days, uh, what bigger lessons do you take away? Like how do we make Harvard great? How do we make uh, other universities, Yale, MIT great in the face of such mistakes? Well, I think that we have moved into a model where we the the we have the consumerization of education. Uh, that is to say, we have feckless administrators uh, who make policy based on what the students say. Um, now, this comment is not intended to suggest that students have no voice in governance, but it is to suggest that the faculty are there for a reason. They are among the greatest minds on the planet Earth in their particular fields at schools like Harvard and, and Yale, Stanford, the schools that you mentioned, MIT. 
quite literally the greatest minds on earth. They're there for a reason. Uh, things like uh, curriculum and so forth uh, are rightly in the province of faculty. And while you take input and critique and so forth, ultimately, the grown-ups in the room have to be sufficiently responsible to take uh, to, to take charge and to uh, direct the course of a student's education. And, um, you, know, you know, my situation is one example where it really could have been an excellent teaching moment about the value of the Sixth Amendment, about what it means to treat um what it means to treat people who are in the crosshairs of the criminal justice system. But rather than having that conversation, um, it's just this consumerization model. Uh, Well, there's a lot of noise out here, so we're going to react in this sort of way. Higher education as well, unfortunately, has been commodified in other uh, sorts of ways that has reduced or, or impeded, hampered, uh, these schools' commitments to uh, free and robust and open dialogue. So to the degree that academic freedom uh, doesn't sit squarely at the center of the academic mission, uh, any school is going to be in trouble. And I really hope that uh, um, that we weather this current political moment where uh, – 19-year-olds without degrees are running universities and get back to a a system where um, faculty, where adults make decisions in the best interests of the university, in the best interests of the student, even to the degree, though, some of those decisions may be uh, uh, unpopular. And that uh, is going to require a certain uh, courage. Um, and hopefully in time, and I'm confident that in time, um, administrators are going to begin to push back on these current trends. Uh, Harvard's been around for a long time. It's been around for a long time for a reason. And one of the reasons is that it uh, understands itself not to be static. So I have every, um, view um, that uh, Harvard is is going to adapt and get itself back on course and be around another 400 years. At least that's my hope. <laughs> so, I mean, what this kind of boils down to is just having difficult conversation, difficult debates. Uh, when you mentioned sort of 19-year-olds, and it's funny, I've seen this even at MIT, it's not that uh, they shouldn't have a voice. It should, should, they they do seem to, I guess you have to experience it and just observe it. They have a strangely disproportionate power. Right, right. It's very interesting to, uh, to basically, I mean, you say, yes, there's great faculty and so on, but, you know, uh, it's not even just that the faculty is smart or wise or whatever. It's that they're just silenced. So the terminology that you mentioned is weaponized as uh, sort of safe spaces or that certain conversations make people feel unsafe. What do you think about this kind of idea? You know, is, is, is there some things that are unsafe to talk about in the university setting? Is there lines to be drawn somewhere? 
And uh, just like you said, on the flip side with a slippery slope, is it too easy for the lines to be drawn everywhere? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So this idea of unsafe space, uh, at least the vocabulary derives from some research, uh, academic research about feeling psychologically uh, unsafe. And so the notion here is that there is uh, there are forms of uh, uh, psychological disquiet that impedes people from uh, experiencing the educational environment to the greatest degree uh, possible. And that's the uh, argument. Uh, I and, and assuming for a moment that uh, people do have these feelings of of, of disquiet uh, at elite universities like MIT and like Harvard, that's probably the safest space people are going to be in for their their, their lives. Because when they get out into the the quote unquote real world, uh, they won't have the uh, the sorts of uh, nets that these schools provide, safety nets that these schools provide. Uh, so to the extent that research is descriptive of a psychological feeling, I think that the duty of the universities uh, are to challenge people. It seems to me that it's a shame to go to a place like Harvard or a place like MIT, Yale, any of these uh, great institutions and come out the same person that you were when you went in. Uh, that seems to be a horrible waste of four years and 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 money and and, and resources. Rather, uh, we ought to challenge uh, students that they grow, um, uh, challenge some of the uh, their most deeply held assumptions. Um, they they may continue to hold them, but the point of an education is to rigorously interrogate um, these fundamental assumptions that have guided you uh, thus far, and to do it uh, fairly and, and civilly. So that to the extent that there are lines that should be drawn, uh, there's a long tradition in the university of civil discourse. So you should uh, draw a line somewhere between civil discourse and uncivil discourse. The purpose of a university is to talk difficult conversations, tough issues, uh, talk directly and frankly, uh, but do it civilly. And, you know, so to, um, you know, yell and cuss at somebody uh, and that sort of thing. Well, you know, do that on your own space, but observe the, the norms of civil discourse at, at the university. Uh, so, look, I think that the presumption ought to be that uh, the most difficult topics are appropriate. To talk about at yeah. a university that that ought to be the presumption. Now you know, uh, should uh, um, MIT, for example, give its prim imprimatur to someone who is espousing uh, the flat Earth theory? You know, the Earth is flat, right? So there, if if certain ideas uh, are are so. Uh, contrary to the scientific uh, and, and, and cultural thinking of the of the moment. Yeah, there, there's space there to draw a line and say, yeah, yeah. we're not going to uh, give you this platform to uh, tell our students that the earth is 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 flat. Uh, but, you know, a topic that's controversial, but contestatory. Mm -hmm. That's what universities are, are for. If you don't like the idea, present better ideas. 
and articulate them. And I, I think there needs to be a mechanism outside of the space of ideas of humbling. Like I, I've done martial arts for a long time. I got my ass kicked a lot. I think that's really important. I mean, the in the space of ideas, I, I mean, even just in engineering, just all the math classes, my memories of math, which I love, is is kind of pain. Is <laughs> basically coming face to face with the with the idea that I'm not special, that I'm much dumber than I thought I was, and that anything accomplishing anything in this world requires really hard work. That's really humbling. That makes you that that puts you because I remember when I was eighteen and nineteen. And I thought oh, I was going to be the smartest, the best fighter, the the Nobel Prize winning, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. And then you come with face to face with reality, and it hurts. And it feels like there needs to be efficient mechanisms from the best universities in the world to, without abusing you, it's a very difficult line to to walk, without like uh, mentally or physically abusing you, be able to humble you. And that's what I. Felt was missing in these very difficult, very important conversations is the 19 year olds, when they spoke up, the mechanism for humbling them with ideas was missing. Uh, it got kind of gotten broke, broken down because as you say, there does, like I sensed fear. Every, everything was permeated with fear. And fear is uh, paralyzing and fear is destructive, especially in a place that's supposed to be all about freedom of ideas. Right. And I, I mean, I don't know if you have anything, um, any thoughts to say on this whole idea of cancel culture, where people, um, I mean, a lot of people use it, it's become political. So staying maybe outside of the world to politics. Is, is this, uh, uh, do you have do you have thoughts about it? Does it bother you that people are sort of put in this bin and uh, labeled as something, and then thereby you can ignore everything they say? I mean, Steven Pinker. There's a lot of Harvard folks that are fighting against against these set of ideas. But do, do you have do you have thoughts? I think that we as a culture are way 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 too quick to cancel uh, people, and it it it's become almost reflexive now, uh, you know, someone uh, says something or makes an, an, an offhand comment, uh, even a mistake, uh, you know, there's there's a move to simply uh, uh, cancel uh, folks. So I, I think that this uh, quote unquote cancel culture um, has really gotten out of control at, 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 at this point. It's forcing people to be robotic uh, in many ways. Uh, no offense, not, yeah, the robots. <laughs> I was going to say, now, now I know I'm venturing into your uh, intellectual domain. <laughs> For future robots watching this, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> and there are many, and it's discouraging a lot of good people from um, getting into public life in any sort of way because, you know, who needs the who needs the stress uh, of it? Well, in, that, in some sense, you're an inspiration that you're able to withstand the the pressure, the pressure of the masses. But it is is it's a sad, it's a sad aspect of human nature that we kind of get into these crowds and we get we start chanting and it's fun for some reason, and then you forget yourself and then you sort of wake up the next day not 
not having uh, anticipated the consequences of all the chanting. Yeah. And yeah. We, we get ourselves in trouble in that. I mean, there's some responsibility on the uh, on social networks and the mechanisms by which they make it more frictionless to do the chanting, to do the canceling, to do the outrage and all that kind of stuff. So I actually, on the technology side, have a hope that that's fixable. But yeah, it, it does seem to be, uh, you know, it, it almost like the internet showed to us that we have a lot of broken ways about which we communicate with each other and we're trying to figure that out. Same with the university. The This mistake by Harvard showed that we need to reinvent what the university is. And I mean, all of this is, it's almost like we're finding our baby deer legs and mm-hmm. trying to strengthen the institutions that have been very successful for, for, for a long time. You know, the really interesting thing about Harvey Weinstein and you choosing these exceptionally difficult cases is also thinking about what it means to defend evil people. What what it means to defend these, we could say, unpopular, and you might push back against the the word evil, but bad people in society. Um, First of all, do you think there's such a thing as evil or do you think all people are good and it's just circumstances that create evil? And also, is there somebody too evil for the law to defend? So that's a so the first question, that's a deep uh, philosophical question, whether the category of evil uh, does any work uh, for me. Uh, (laughs) It it does for me. I I do think that uh, I do subscribe to that category that there is uh, evil uh, in the world as conventionally uh, understood. So uh, so there are many who will say, yeah, that just doesn't doesn't do any work for me. Uh, But uh, the category evil, in fact, does intellectual work for me. And I I understand it as 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 something that uh, that uh, exists. Um, Is it genetic or is it the circumstance like what what kind of work does it do for you intellectually? I think that it's uh, entirely contingent. That is to say that the conditions in which one grows up and so forth uh, 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 begins to create this category that we may think of as evil. Now, there are um, studies and and, and whatnot that show that uh, certain um, uh, brain abnormalities and so forth are are more prevalent in, say, serial killers. So there may be a biological predisposition to certain forms of conduct, but um, uh, I don't don't have the... uh, biological evidence to make a statement that someone is born evil and and you know i i'm i'm not a determinist thinker in that way so you come out the womb evil and you're destined to be that way um to the extent there may be biological uh determinants uh there still require some uh, uh nurture uh, as well uh, so but do you still put a responsibility for the on the individual of course yeah, we all make choices, and so some responsibility uh, on the individual. Indeed, we live in a culture, unfortunately, where a lot of people have a constellation of bad choices in front of them, and that mm-hmm. makes me very sad. Yeah, um, that the people grow up with with 
predominantly bad choices in in front of them, and that's unfair, and that's that that's on all of us. Uh, but yes, I do think we make we make choices. Wow, that's so powerful. The constellation of bad choices. Hey, that's such a powerful way to think about sort of equality, which is the the set of trajectories before you that you could take if you just roll the dice. Because, you know, life is is a kind of optimization problem, sorry to take us into math, over a set of trajectories under imperfect information. Uh, So you're gonna do a lot of stupid shit, (laughs) to put it uh, in technical terms. Uh, But uh, the... The, the fraction of the trajectories that take you into into bad places or into good places is really important. And that's ultimately what we're talking about. And evil might be just a little bit of a predisposition biologically, but the rest is just trajectories that you can take. I've been studying Hitler a lot hmm. recently. I've been reading uh, probably way too much. And it's, it's interesting to think about all the possible trajectories right. uh, that uh, could have avoided the this indiv- particular individual developing the hate that he did, the following that he did, the the actual final. Uh, th- there's a few turns in him psychologically where he went from being a leader that just wants to conquer, and to a, uh, somebody who a- allowed his anger and emotion to take over, to where he started making mistakes. For uh, in terms of militarily speaking, mm-hmm. but also started doing, you know, evil things, mm-hmm. and uh, all the possible trajectories that could have avoided that are fascinating. Including, he wasn't that bad at painting, at, at drawing. Right, right. that's that's true. That is <laughs> from true. the very beginning, and uh, and his time in Vienna. There's all these possible things to, uh, to think about, and of course, there's millions of others like him that never came to power and all those kinds of things. Uh, so, but that goes to the second question on the on the side of evil. Do you think, uh, and, and Hitler's often brought up as like an example of somebody who is like the epitome of evil. Do you think you would, if you got that same phone call after World War II and Hitler survived, uh, during war, you know, uh, the trial for war crimes, would you take the case defending uh, Adolf Hitler? If you don't want to answer that one, is there a line to draw for evil for who to not to defend? No, I think I think everyone. I'll do the second one first. Everyone has a right to a defense if you're charged criminally in in the United States of of America. So. Uh, no, I, I do not think that there's someone so evil that they do not deserve a um, defense. Uh, process matters. Uh, process helps us get to results um, more accurately than we would otherwise. So it is important and it's vitally important and indeed more important for uh, someone deemed to be evil to receive the same quantum of process and the same substance of process that anyone else would. It's vitally important to the health of our criminal justice system for that to uh, happen. So, yes, uh, everybody, uh, Hitler included, uh, were uh, he charged in the United States for a crime that occurred in the United States. Uh, uh, Yes. Um, um, 
whether I would do it if I were a public defender and assigned the case. Uh, yes, I started my career as a public defender. I represent anyone who was uh, assigned to me. Uh, I think that is our uh, our duty uh, in private uh, uh, practice. Uh, I have choices, uh, and I I likely based on the hypo you gave me, and I would tweak it a bit because it would have to be a a, a U.S. United prime States, and, yeah, yeah. And, and so, but but I get the broader point and don't want to bog down in technicalities. I'd, I'd likely uh, pass uh, right right now as I I see it, unless um, it was a case where no nobody else would 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 represent him. Um, you know, then uh, I, I would I would think that I have some sort of duty and and, and obligation uh, to 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 do it. Uh, but yes, everyone uh, absolutely deserves a, a right to competent counsel. That is a beautiful ideal. It's difficult to think about it in the face of public pressure. It's just, I mean, um, it's kind of terrifying to watch the masses during this past year of 2020 to watch the power of the masses to make a decision before uh, any of the data is out, if the data is ever out, any of the details, any of the processes. And I, and there is an anger to the justice system. There's a lot of people that feel like, even though the ideal you describe is a beautiful one, it does not always operate uh, justly. <laughs> it does not operate to the best of its ideals. It uh, operates unfairly. Can we go to the big picture of the criminal justice system? What to you, given the ideal, works about our criminal justice system and what is broken? Well, there's a lot broken uh, <laughs> right right now, and I usually focus on, on that. Uh, but uh, in truth, a lot uh, works about our criminal justice system. So there's a there's an old joke, uh, and it, uh, it it it's funny, but it it carries a lot of truth to it. And the joke is that um, in the United States we have the worst criminal justice system in the world, except for every place else. Yeah. And um, and yes, we we certainly have a number of problems. Uh, and a lot of problems based on race and class and economic station. Uh, but we have a process that privileges liberty. And that's a good feature of the criminal justice system. So here's how it works. The idea of the relationship between the individual and the state is such that in the United States, uh, we privilege uh, liberty over and above very many values, so much so that a statement by Increase Mather, not you know, terribly far from where we're sitting right now, has gained traction uh, over all these years, and it's that better ten guilty go free than one innocent person convicted. Uh, that is an expression of the way in which uh, we understand liberty to operate in our collective consciousness. We would rather a bunch of guilty people go free than to than to um impact the liberty interests of any uh, individual person so that's a guiding principle in our criminal justice system uh liberty and so we set uh, a process that makes it difficult to convict people 
We have rules of procedure that are cumbersome and that slow down the process and that um, exclude otherwise reliable evidence. And this is all because we place a value on uh, liberty. And I think these are good things. And it uh, and it says a lot about our criminal justice system. Uh, some of the bad features uh, have to do with the way in which uh, uh, this country sees color as a proxy for criminality and and treats uh, people of color in radically different ways in the in the criminal justice system, uh, from uh, arrests to uh, charging decisions to sentencing. Uh, people of color are disproportionately uh, impacted uh, on all sorts of registers. Um, uh, one example, and it's a, a, a popular one, uh, that uh, although there appears to be no uh, distinguishable difference between uh, drug use by whites and blacks in the country, um, uh, blacks, though only 12 percent of the population represent 40 percent of the uh, the uh, drug charges in, in, in the country. There's 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 some disequities along uh, race and class in the criminal justice system that we really have to have to have to fix. And they've grown to more than than bugs in the system and have become features, unfortunately, of our features. system. Oh, to to make it more efficient to make judgments. So the racism makes it more efficient. It uh, it, it it efficiently. Uh, moves people uh, from society to the streets. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, and a lot of innocent people get caught up in that. Well, let me ask in terms of the innocence. So you've gotten a lot of people who are innocent. Uh, you, def um, I guess, I guess <laughs> revealed their innocence, demonstrated their innocence. What's that process like? What's it like emotionally, psychologically? What's it like legally to fight the system in uh, through the process of revealing sort of uh, the innocence of a human being? Yeah, emotionally and psychologically, it can be taxing. Uh, I follow a model of uh, what's called empathic representation, and that is I, I get to know my clients and their family. I get to know their strivings, their aspirations, their fears, their sorrows. Uh, so that uh, certainly uh, sometimes can do psychic injury uh, on one. Uh, if you, you know, you get really invested and really sad and, and or happy and it, uh, it, 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 it does become emotionally uh, taxing. Uh, but the idea of uh, someone sitting in jail for 20 years, completely innocent of a crime. Can you imagine sitting there every day for 20 years knowing that you factually did not do the thing that you were convicted of by a jury of your peers? It, it, it's it got to be the most incredible thing in the world. Um, what the, But the people who do it and the people who make it and come out on the other side as productive citizens are folks who say, uh, they, 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 they've come to an inner peace in their own minds mm -hmm. and they say these bars aren't going to define me, uh, that my, my humanity is uh, is there and it's, it's immutable and they uh, are not bitter, which yeah. is amazing. I, I, I would tend to think that I'm not that good of a person. <laughs> I would be bitter for yeah. every day of 20 years yeah. if I were in, in jail. 
for something. But, you know, but but people tell me that, you know, that they can't survive like that. One cannot survive like yeah. that. And you have to come to terms with it. And uh, and uh, the the people whom I've exonerated, I mean, they, they come out, uh, most of them uh, come out and, and they just uh, really just take on life with a vim and, and, and vigor without uh, bitterness. And it's it's a beautiful thing to see. Do you think it's possible to eradicate racism from the judicial system? I do. I think as uh, I think that race insinuates itself in all aspects of our lives, and the, judici- ju- the judicial system is not immune from that. So, to the extent we begin to eradicate uh, dangerous and deleterious race thinking from society generally then it will uh, be er- eradicated from the uh, criminal justice system. I think we've got a lot of work to do, and I think it'll be a while, but uh, but I think it's, it's doable. I mean, you know, uh, the country, so historians will look back 300 years from now and take note of the incredible journey of— uh, diasporic Africans in the in, in, in the U.S. An incredible journey from, uh, you know, slavery uh, to the the heights of politics and business and judiciary and the academy and so forth in not a lot of time mm-hmm. and actually not a lot of time. And if we can have that sort of movement historically, uh, let's think about what the next 175 years will look like. I'm not saying it's going to be short, uh, but I'm saying that if we keep at it, uh, keep getting to know each other uh, a little better, uh, keep enforcing laws uh, that prohibit uh, the the sort of race-based discrimination that people have experienced and provide uh, as a society opportunities uh, for people to thrive in this world, then I think we can we can see a better world, and if we see a better world, we'll see a better judicial system. So I think it's kind of fascinating if you look throughout history, and race is just part of that. Is uh, we create the other and uh, treat the other with disdain through the legal system, but just through human nature. I tend to believe we mentioned offline that I work with uh, robots. It sounds absurd to say, especially to you, especially because we're talking about racism and it's so prevalent today. I do believe that there will be almost like a civil rights movement for robots. Because uh, with the, I think there's a huge value to society of having artificial intelligence systems uh, that are uh, that interact with humans and are and are human like. Mm-hmm. And the more they become human-like, you will. They will start. They, they will start to ask very fundamentally human questions about freedom, about suffering, about justice. And they will will have to come face to face, like look in the mirror, in asking the question: Just because we're biologically based, just because we're sort of, uh, well, just because we're human does that mean we're the only ones that deserve the rights? Again, giving, forming another other group, which is robots. And I'm sure there could be along that path, different versions of other that we form. So racism, race is certainly a big 
other that we've made, uh, as you said, a lot of progress on throughout the history of this country. But it does feel like we always create, as we make progress, create new other groups. And of course, the other the other group that uh, perhaps is outside the legal system that people talk about is the essential. Now, I eat a lot of meat, but the torture of animals. You know, the people talk about when we look back from you know a couple centuries from now, look back at the kind of things we're doing to animals, we might regret that. We might see that in a very different light. And it's kind of interesting to see the future trajectory of what we wake up to about the injustice in our in our ways. Um, but the robot one is the one I'm especially focused on because, uh, but at this moment in time, it seems ridiculous. But I'm sure most civil rights movements throughout history seem ridiculous at first. Well, it's interesting, uh, sort of outside of my uh, intellectual uh, bailiwick uh, robots, as, as I understand the development of um, artificial intelligence, uh, though, the um, the aspect that uh, still is missing is this notion of of consciousness, uh, and that it's it's consciousness that is the the thing that uh, will uh, will move um, if it were to exist, and I'm not saying that it can or will. But if it were to exist, would move robots from uh, machines to uh, something different, uh, that ex- something that experienced the world in a way analogous to what how we experience it. Um, and also, as I understand the science, there's a um, unlike what you see on on television that we're not. We're not uh, there yet in terms of uh, this notion of uh, the machines having uh, a consciousness. um, uh, Or or a a great general intelligence, all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. A huge amount of progress has been made, and it's it's fascinating to watch. So I'm I'm on both minds. As a person who's building them, I'm realizing how sort of quote-unquote dumb they are, (laughs) but also looking at human history and how poor we are predicting the progress of innovation and technology, it's obvious that we have to be humble by our ability to predict, coupled with the fact that we keep, uh, to to use terminology carefully here, we keep discriminating against the intelligence of uh, artificial systems. The smarter they get, the more ways we find to dismiss their intelligence. Uh, so this this has just been going on throughout. Where I, <laughs> it's almost as if we're threatened in the most primitive human way, mm-hmm. uh, animalistic way. We're threatened by the power of other creatures, and we want to lessen, dismiss them. So consciousness is a really important one. But the one I think about a lot in terms of consciousness, the very engineering question is whether the display of consciousness is the same as the possession of consciousness. So if a robot tells you they are conscious, if a robot looks like they're suffering when you torture them, if a robot is afraid of death and says they're afraid of death and are legitimately afraid, like for in terms of just uh, everything we as humans used to determine the ability of somebody to be their own entity, 
They're the one that loves, one that fears, mm -hmm. one that hopes, one that can suffer. If if a robot, like in the dumbest of ways, is able to display that, we it it change it starts changing things very quickly. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but it does seem that there's a huge component to consciousness that is a social creation. Mm -hmm. Like we together create our mm -hmm. consciousness. Like we believe our common humanity together. Alone, we wouldn't be aware of our humanity. And the law, as it protects our freedoms, seems to be a construct of the social construct. And when you add other creatures into it, it's not obvious to me that like you have to build, there'll be a moment when you say, this thing is now conscious. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of fake it until you make it. And there'll be a very gray area between fake and make mm -hmm. that uh, is going to force us to contend with what it means to be an entity that deserves rights. Mm -hmm. Where all, all men are created equal, the, the men part might have to expand in ways that we are not yet anticipating. And it's very interesting. I mean, my favorite, the fundamental thing I love about artificial intelligence is it gets smarter and smarter. It challenges to think of uh, what is right, the questions of justice, questions of freedom, it basically challenges us to uh, to understand our own mind, to understand uh, what, uh, like, almost from an engineering first principles perspective, to understand what it is that makes us human, that is at the core of all the rights that we talk about and all the documents we write. Mm -hmm. So even if we don't give rights to artificial intelligence systems, we may be able to construct more fair, legal systems to protect us humans. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, interesting ontological question uh, between the the performance of consciousness and 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 actual consciousness to the extent that it's um, that actual consciousness is anything beyond some contingent reality. Uh, but you've posed a number of, of of interesting philosophical questions, and then there's also it strikes me that. Uh, that um, philosophers of religion would pose another set of questions uh, as well when you um, deal with uh, uh, issues of uh, of structure versus soul, body versus soul, and and uh, it it would be a it, it will be a complicated mix, and I suspect I'll be uh, dust by the time those questions get get worked out. And uh, so, yeah, the soul the soul is a fun one. There's no soul. I'm I'm not sure. Maybe you can correct me, but there's very few discussion of soul in our legal system, right? Right. Correct. So, None. so, so uh, None. but there is a discussion about what constitutes a, a human being, and I mean, you gestured at the notion of uh, the potential of the law uh, widening the domain of uh, so of, of, of human being. So, in 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 that sense, right. Uh, you know, people are very angry because they can't uh, uh, get uh, sort of pain and suffering damages if someone negligently kills a pet because a pet is not a, a human uh, being. And people say, well, I love my yeah. pet, but the law sees uh, a pet as chattel, as property like this, yeah. this water bottle. Uh, so the, the current legal definitions 
um, trade on a definition of humanity that may not be worked out in any sophisticated way, but certainly um, there's a there's a shared, broad and shared understanding of what what it what it means. Uh, so probably doesn't uh, explicitly contain a definition of something like soul, uh, but it's it's more robust than you know a carbon based organism uh, that there's something. Uh, a, a little more distinct about what the law thinks a human being is. So if we can dive into, uh, we've already been doing it, but if we can dive into more difficult territory. So uh, 2020 had the tragic case of George Floyd. When you reflect on the protests, on the racial tensions over the death of George Floyd, how do you make sense of it all? Uh, what do you take away from these events? Look, the George Floyd moment occurred, occurred at, at at an historical um, moment where people were uh, in um, quarantine for COVID, um, and people um, have these uh, cell phones to a degree greater than we've ever had them before, and this was a sort of the straw that broke the camel's back after a number of these sorts of cell phone videos uh, surfaced. People were fed up. Uh, they There was unimpeachable uh, evidence of um, a form of, of mistreatment, whether it constitutes murder or manslaughter. There, the trial is going on now. And jurors will figure that out, but but there was widespread appreciation that uh, a fellow human being was was mistreated. That uh, we were just talking about humanity. That there was um, not a sufficient recognition of this person's uh, humanity. The common humanity of this person. The yeah. common humanity of this person. Well, well said. And people were fed up. So we were already in this COVID space where. We uh, were exercising care for one another, uh, and it, it, there was just an explosion, the likes of which this country hasn't seen since the you know civil rights uh, uh, protests of the 1950s and 1960s. And people uh, simply said, enough, 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 enough. This has to stop. We cannot treat uh, fellow citizens in, in this way, and we can't do it with impunity. And the young people said, we're just, we're just, we're not going to stand for it anymore. And they took to the streets. But with the uh, millions of people protesting, there is nevertheless taking us back to the most difficult of trials. You have the trial, like you mentioned, that's going on now of Derek Chauvin, of one of the police officers involved. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are your predictions on this? trial where the law, the process of the law is trying to proceed in the face of so much racial tension. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting trial. I've, I've been keeping an eye on it there in jury selection now today as we're, we're talking. Uh, so a lot's going to depend on what sort of jury gets selected. Uh, yeah, how the, uh, sorry to take, uh, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but uh, so one of the interesting qualities of this trial, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the cameras are allowed in the courtroom, at least during the jury selection. So, uh, so you get to watch some of this stuff. 
And uh, the other part is the jury selection. Again, I'm very inexperienced, but it seems like selecting an, what is it, unbiased jury is <laughs> really difficult for this trial. It's it almost like, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, me as a listener, like listen, you know, listening to people uh, that are trying to talk their way into the jury kind of thing, trying to decide, is this person really unbiased or are they just trying to hold on to their like deeply held emotions mm -hmm. and trying to get onto the jury? I mean, it's incredibly difficult process. I don't know if you can comment on a case so difficult, like the ones you've mentioned before, how do you select a jury that represents the people and doesn't and and carries the sort of the ideal of the law. Yeah. So a couple things. So first, yes, it is televised and it will be televised, as they say, gavel to gavel. So the entire trial, the whole, so thing. The whole thing is going to be televised. So uh, people are getting uh, a view of how uh, laborious jury selection can be. Uh, I think as of yesterday, they had picked six jurors and it's it's taken a week and they have to get to 14 uh, so, uh, they've got, you know, uh, probably another week or, or more to, to, to do. I've been in jury trials where it took a month to choose a, a jury. So that, that's the most important part. You have to, you have to choose the right, uh, sort of jury. So unbiased in the criminal justice system has a particular meaning. It, it means that, uh, that, uh, it, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that a person, uh, is not aware of the case, uh, it also does not mean that a person hasn't formed an opinion about the case. Those are two popular misconceptions. Uh, what it does mean is that notwithstanding whether uh, an individual has formed an opinion, notwithstanding whether an individual knows about the case, uh, that individual can set aside any prior opinions, can set aside any notions that they've developed about the case and listen to the evidence presented at trial in conjunction with the judge's instructions on how to uh, understand and view that evidence. So if a person can do that, then they're considered unbiased. Uh, so, you know, as a longtime uh, defense attorney, uh, I, you know, I would be hesitant in a big case like this to pick a juror who's never heard of the case or anything going around because I'm thinking, well, who is this person and what, what, what in the world do they do? Uh, uh, so, uh, or, or are they lying to me? I mean, how can you not have heard about, uh, this case? Um, so they may bring other pro problems. So I, you know, I don't mind so much people who've heard about the case or folks who've formed initial op opinions. Uh, but you, 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 what you don't want is people who, uh, have tethered themselves to that opinion, uh, in a way that, uh, you know, they can't be convinced, uh, otherwise. So, um, but you also have people who, uh, as you suggested, who just lie because they want to get on the jury or lie because they want to get off the jury. So <laughs> sometimes people come and say, you know, uh, the most yeah. ridiculous, outrageous, offensive things uh, to know because they know that they'll get excused for yeah. cause. And others who um, you can tell uh, really badly want to get on the jury. So yeah. they're, you know, they're just... They pretend to be the 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 most uh, neutral, unbiased person in the world. Uh, what the law calls the reasonable person. We have in law the reasonable person standard. Yeah. Uh, and I would uh, tell my class the uh, you know the the reasonable person in in real life is the 
person that you would be least likely to want to have a drink with. They're the most <laughs> boring, uh, neutral, not interesting sort of person in the world. And so a lot of jurors uh, engage in the performative act of presenting themselves as the most sort of even killed, rational, reasonable person because they really want to get on the jury. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, question. I apologize. I haven't watched a lot because it is very long. I've, I've watched it. <laughs> Uh, you know, th there's there's certain questions you've asked in the jury uh, you ask in the jury selection. I remember, uh, I think one jumped out at me, which is, uh, you know, something like, uh, does the fact that this person is a police officer make you f feel any kind of way about them? So trying to get at that, you know, I, I don't know what that is. I guess that's bias, hmm? and that's such a difficult question. To ask, like I asked myself of that question, like how much, you know, we all kind of want to pretend that we're not racist and we don't uh, judge, we don't have, we're like these, per <laughs> we're the reasonable human, but, you know, legitimately asking yourself, like, are you, what are the, what are the prejudgments you have in your mind? Uh, is that even impossible for a human being, like when you look at yourself in the mirror and think about it, is it possible to actually answer that? Yeah, I look. I uh, I do not believe that people can be completely unbiased. We all have baggage and bias, and bring it wherever we go, including to court. What you want is to try to find a person who can at least recognize. Yeah. When a bias is working and actively try to do the right thing. That's the best we can we, we can ask. So if a juror says, yeah, you know, look, I grew up in a place where I tend to believe what police officers say. That's just how I grew up. But if the judge is telling me that I have to listen to every witness equally, then, I'll you know, I'll, I'll do my best and I won't weigh that testimony any higher than I would any other testimony. If you have someone answer a question like that, that sounds more sincere to me. Uh, sounds more honest. And if you want a person, you want a person to try to do that. And then in closing arguments, right, as the lawyer, right, I'd say something like, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we chose you to be on this jury because you swore that you would do your level best to be fair. That's why we chose you. And I'm confident that you're going to do that here. So when you heard that police officer's testimony, the judge told you, you can't give more credit to that testimony just because it's a police officer. And I trust that you're going to do that and that you're going to look at witness number three, you know, John Smith. You're going to look mm -hmm. at John Smith. John Smith has a different recollection yes. and you're duty bound duty bound to look at that testimony and this person's credibility, you know, the same degree as that other witness, right? And now what you have is just a he said, she said matter. And this is a criminal case that has to be reasonable doubt, right? So, you know, so you, and, and really someone who's trying to do the right thing, uh, it's helpful, but no, you're not going to just find 14 people with no biases. That's, that's absurd. Well, that's, that's fascinating that, uh, especially the way you're inspiring, the way you're speaking now is, uh, I mean, I guess you're calling on the jury. That's kind of the whole system is you're calling on the jury, each individual on the jury to step up and really think, 
you know, to, to step up and be their uh, most thoughtful selves, actually, yeah. most introspective. Like, you're trying to basically ask people to uh, be their best selves. And that's, and they, I guess a lot of people step up to that. <laughs> yeah, that's why the do. system works. I'm very, I'm, I'm very pro-jury. Uh, juries, they, they get it right. It works. A lot of the time, most of the time, and they really work hard to do it. So what do you think happens? I mean, maybe, uh, I'm, I'm not so much on the legal side of things, but on the social side, it's like with the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you think it's possible that Derek Sherwin does not get convicted of the, what is it, second-degree murder? Uh, how do you think about that? How do you think about the potential social impact of that, the the riots, the protests, the, either, either direction? Any words that are said, the tension here could be explosive, especially with the cameras. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, there's certainly a possibility that he he'll be acquitted um for homicide charges um, for the jury to convict, uh, they have to make a determination as to Officer Chauvin's former officer uh Chauvin's state of mind, uh whether he intended to cause some harm whether he was grossly reckless in causing harm, so much so that he disregarded a known risk of death or serious bodily injury. And as you may have um, read in the papers yesterday, the judge allowed a a third degree uh, murder charge in Kentucky, which uh, is uh, it's the mindset, the state of mind uh, there is not an intention uh, but it's a depraved indifference. Uh, and what that means is that the jury doesn't have to find that he intended to do anything. Uh, rather, they could find that he was just indifferent yeah. to uh, a risk. Uh, That's dark. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm not and, sure what's worse. Uh, but. Yeah, well, that's that's a good point, but uh, <laughs> but but it's a it's another basis for the jury uh, to convict. But but look, uh, you never know what what happens when you go to a jury trial. So there could be a um, an acquittal, and if there is, I imagine there would be massive uh, uh, protests. Uh, if he's convicted, I, I I don't think that would happen. Because uh, I just don't see, at least nothing I've seen or read, suggests that there's a a big pro uh, Chauvin camp yeah, out there right. ready to well, protest. Well, there could be a Is there also uh, potential tensions that could arise from the sentencing? I don't know how that exactly works. Sort of not enough years kind of thing. Yeah, it could all be. That, all could that kind be. of stuff. I mean, it's a, a lot could happen. So it depends on what he's convicted of, uh, you know. One count, I think, is like up to 10 years. Another count's up to 40 years. Uh, so it depends what he's convicted of. And yes, it depends on how much of the, how much time the judge gives him if he is convicted. Uh, th th there's a lot of space for people to be very angry. And so we will, we, we will see what, what happens. I just feel like with the judge and, and the lawyers, there's an opportunity to have really important, long lasting speeches. I don't know if they think of it that way, especially with the cameras. Mm -hmm. It it feels like they have the capacity to heal 
or to divide. Um, do you ever think about that as a as a lawyer, as a legal mind, that your words aren't just about the case, but about they they'll reverberate through history potentially? Um, that is that is certainly a possible consequence of things you say. I don't think that most lawyers think about that uh, in the context of a case. Uh, your role is much more narrow. Uh, you're the partisan advocate as a defense lawyer, partisan advocate for uh, that client. As a prosecutor, you're a minister of justice um, attempting to prosecute that particular case. But the reality is you are absolutely correct that sometimes the things you say uh, will have a, a shelf life. And you mentioned O.J. Simpson before, you know, if the glove doesn't fit, uh, you must acquit. It's going to be, you know, just in, in our lexicon for probably a long time yeah. now. So so it, it, it happens. But that's not uh, and, and it shouldn't be uh, foremost on your mind. Right. What, what do you make? Uh, what do you make of the O.J. Simpson trial? Do you, do you have thoughts about it? He is uh, he's out and about on social media now. He's a public figure. Is there uh, lessons to be drawn from that whole saga? Well, you know, that was an interesting case. I was a young public defender, I want to say, in my first year mm -hmm. uh, as a public defender when that verdict came out. So that case was important in so many ways. One, um, it was the first DNA case, um, a major uh, DNA case. And there were significant lessons learned from that one um mistake that the prosecution made was uh, that they didn't present the science in a way that a lay jury could understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what Johnny Cochran did was he understood the science and was able to uh, uh, translate that into a, into a vocabulary that he bet that that jury uh, un understood. Uh, so so Cochran was dismissive of a lot of DNA. They say, you know, he said something like, oh, you know, they say they found, you know, uh, such and such amount of DNA. That's just like me, you know, wiping my finger against my nose and and and, and just that little bit of DNA. And uh, that was effective because the prosecution hadn't done a good job of establishing that. Yes, it's microscopic. <laughs> you don't need that much. Yes, yeah. wiping your hand on your nose yeah. and touching something. You can transfer a lot of DNA, and that gives you good information. Yeah. But, you know, it was the first time that the public generally and that jury, maybe since high school science, had heard, you know, you know, nucleotide. I mean, yeah. it was just all these terms getting thrown at them. and and But it was not weaved into a, a, a narrative. So uh, Cochran taught us um, that— no matter what type of case it is, no matter what science is involved, it's still about storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's still about a narrative, and he was, uh, and he was great uh, at that, at that, uh, at that narrative, and was consistent uh, with his narrative all the way out. Uh, another uh, lesson that uh, was relearned uh, is that you know you never ask a question to which you don't know the answer. That's like. Uh, <laughs> trial advocacy 101 yes. and so when they gave uh oj simpson the glove and it wouldn't fit you know you don't you, you don't do things where you just don't know how it's going to turn out it was way way too risky and then and and i think that's what acquitted him because mm -hmm. that the glove, glove the glove just wouldn't fit and he got to 
do this and ham in front of the camera and, and all of that and uh and you, it was big. Do you think about do you think about representation as storytelling? Like you yourself and your Absolutely. role? Absolutely. Absolutely. We tell stories. It is fundamental. We uh since time immemorial we have told stories to help us make sense of the world around us. So um as a scientist you tell a different type of story uh but we as a, a public have told stories um uh from time immemorial to 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 help us make sense of the physical and the natural uh world and uh we are still a a a, a species that is moved by storytelling so that that's first and and last in trial work you have to tell a good story um, and, you know, the basic introductory books about trial work uh, teach young students, young students and young lawyers to to start in openings with this case is about this case is about. And then you fill in the blank and, you know, that's your narrative. That's the narrative you're going to you're going to tell. And of course, you can do the ultra dramatic. The glove doesn't fit kind of uh, the climax and all those kinds of things. Yes, but yes, that's the best are, of narratives, yeah. the best of stories. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of other really powerful stories that you were involved with, is the Aaron Hernandez trial and the whole story, the whole legal case. Can you maybe overview the big picture uh, story and legal case of Aaron Hernandez? Yeah. So Aaron, whom I miss a, a, a lot. Um, so he was charged with a, a double murder in 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 the case that I tried, and this was a unique case and one of those impossible cases, uh, in part because Aaron had already been uh, convicted of a murder, and so we had a client who was on trial for a double murder after having already been convicted of uh, a separate murder, and we had a jury pool, uh, just about all of whom. Uh, knew that he had been convicted of of a murder because he was a very popular football player in Boston, uh, which is a big football town with the with the Patriots. Uh, so you know, so everyone knew that he was a convicted murderer, and here we are uh, defending for uh, in a double murder case. Um, so that was the that was the context. It was an odd case in the sense that the this murder had gone gone unsolved for a couple of years. And then a nightclub bouncer uh, said something to a cop who was working at a club uh, that uh, Aaron Hernandez was somehow involved in that, in that murder that happened in the theater district. That's the district where all the clubs are in Boston and where the, the homicide occurred. And once the police heard Aaron Hernandez's name, then it was, you know, they went uh, all out in order to, to 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 do this. And they found a guy named Alexander Bradley, uh, who uh, was a, a a very significant uh, 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 a drug dealer in the uh, sort of uh, Connecticut area. Uh, very very significant, very powerful, um, and. Uh, he essentially, in exchange for a deal, uh, pointed to Aaron, said, yeah, I was with Aaron and uh, and Aaron uh, was the uh, was the murderer. Uh, so that's how the case came came to court. 
Okay, so that that sets the context. What was your involvement in this case, like legally, intellectually, psychologically, uh, when this particular uh, second uh, charge of murder? So a, a friend uh, called me, uh, Jose Baez, uh, who is a defense attorney, and he uh, comes to uh, a class that I teach every year at Harvard, the Trial Advocacy Workshop, uh, as one of my um, uh, teaching faculty members. Uh, it's a class where we teach students how to try cases. Uh, so uh, Jose called me and said, hey, uh, I got a call from Massachusetts, Aaron Hernandez, uh, you want to go and, and talk to him uh, with me? Uh, so I said, sure. So we went up to the to the prison and uh, uh, and met uh, Aaron and uh, spoke with him for two or three hours that first time. And before we left, he said he, he wanted to uh, retain us. Uh, he wanted to work with us. And, and that started the representation. What was he like uh, what would, in that time? What was he worn down by the whole process? Was there still he, he was he, a light he, in that? He, he was not. He he had. I mean, more than just a light. He was luminous almost. Uh, he had a, a radiant million dollar smile uh, whenever you walked in. Uh, my first impression, I distinctly remember, was, "Wow, this is what a professional athlete looks like." I mean, he walked in and he's just just bigger and more fit than, you know, than anyone, <laughs> yeah. you know, anywhere. And it's like, wow, this, and, you know, when you saw him on television, he looked kind of little. And I was like, so I was, remember thinking, well, what, what do those other guys look like in, in person? <laughs> um, and, um, and he's extraordinarily polite, uh, uh, young, uh, uh, is that, I, I was, Surprised by how young uh, he he was, both in mind and uh, and body. But uh, cr chronologically, I was you know thinking he was in his you know in his early twenties, I believe. Uh, yeah. he was a, but there seemed to be like an innocence to him uh, in terms of just the way he saw the world. Uh, I think that's get, right. They picked that up from the from the documentary, just taking that in. I, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is a Netflix documentary titled Killer Inside the Mind of Aaron Hernandez. What are your thoughts on this documentary? I don't know if you got a chance to see. I, I, I did not, I have not seen it. I, I did not participate in it. I know I was in it because of, uh, there was news footage uh, that, but I did not participate in it. I had not talked to Aaron about, uh, about uh, press or anything uh, before he, he died. Uh, my strong view is that the attorney-client privilege survives death, and so I was not inclined to talk about anything that Aaron and I talked about. So I just didn't uh, participate, and 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 I've never watched. Not it. even watch, huh? So yeah. do you, is that does that apply to most of your work? Do you try to stay away from the way the press perceives stuff? Uh, during, uh, yes, I try to stay away from it. I, I will view it afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I just hadn't gotten around to watching uh, Aaron because it's kind of it's kind of sad. Uh, yeah. So I just have, haven't watched it. But I definitely stay away from the press during trial. Uh, and you know, there are some lawyers who watch it religiously to see what's going on. But you know, I'm I'm confident in my years of training and so forth that and that I can. Uh, actively sense what's going on in the courtroom and and that I, I really don't need advice from Joe 476 
at Gmail, uh, you know, some random right. guy on the internet telling me how to try cases. So yeah. it's just, to me, it's just confusing and I just, I keep it out of my mind. And, and, and even if you think you can ignore it, just reading it will have a, a little bit of an effect on your mind. I, th that I think that's, o I think that's right. Over yeah. time might, might uh, accumulate. Uh, so the, the do documentary, but in general, uh, it mentioned or kind of uh, emphasized and talked about Aaron's sexuality or sort of they were discussing basically the idea that he was a homosexual and some of the trauma, some of the suffering that he endured in his life had to do with sort of fear given the society of, uh, of what his father would think, of what others around him, sort of especially in, in uh, sport culture and football and so on. So I don't know in your interaction with him was, uh, do you think that maybe even leaning up to a suicide, do you think his uh, struggle with coming to terms with his sexuality had a role to play in much of uh, his yeah. difficulties? Well, I'm not gonna talk about my interactions with right. him and anything yeah, I yeah, derive yeah. from from that. Um, but, you know, what I will say is that um, a story broke on the on the radio uh, at, at some point uh, during the, the, the trial that uh, Aaron had been in the same sex relationship with someone and some sport local sportscasters, local Boston sportscasters would be really uh mushroomed uh the 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 story so uh, uh he and everyone uh was aware of it um you'll you also may know from the court record that the uh prosecutors floated a uh specious theory um for a minute but then backed off of it that you know that Aaron was uh, that there was some sort of, uh, I guess, gay rage at work with him, and that might be a, a cause, a motive uh, for the killing. And uh, luckily, they they really backed off of that. That was quite an offensive uh, claim and 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 theory. So, um, but um, to answer your question more directly, I mean, I have no idea why he he, he killed himself. It was a a surprise and a shock. Um, I was scheduled to go see him like a couple days after it happened. I mean, he was anxious uh, for uh, Jose and I to come in and do the appeal from the murder, which he was convicted for. He wanted us to take over that appeal. Um, he was talking about going back to football. I mean, he said, well, you talk about this you, earlier. You talked about the sort of innocent aspect of him. He, he said, you know, well, well, Ron, maybe not, maybe not the Patriots, but you know, I want to get back in the league. And I was like, you know, Aaron, that's that's going to be tough, man. Uh, but uh, but he really, you know, he really believed it. And uh, and then uh, you know, uh, for a few days later, that to happen, it was just it was a real shock to me. Like when you look back at that at, at his story, uh, does it make you sad? Very, very. Uh, I, I thought uh, uh, so. So one, I, I believe he 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 absolutely did not uh, commit the, the the crimes that we could, uh, acquitted him on. Uh, I think that was the right answer uh, for 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 that. Um, 
uh, I don't know enough about Bradley, the first case, I'm sorry, to make a, make an opinion on. But, but, but in our case, uh, you know, uh, it was just he had the misfortune of having a famous name. Yes. And the police department just really just 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 really got got on him there. So, um, uh, yes, it, it's it's I, I miss him a lot. It was very, very sad, surprising. Yeah. And, and I mean, just on the human side, of course, we don't know the full story, but just everything that led up to suicide, uh, everything led up to uh, an incredible professional football player. You know that whole story. If uh, he's remarkably talented athlete, remarkably talented athlete, and it's it has to do with all the all the possible trajectories, right? That we can take through life, as we were talking about before, and some of them lead to uh, to suicide. Sadly enough, and it's it's always tragic when you have yeah. some you know somebody with uh, with great potential uh, re- result in. And the things that happen. Right. People love it when I ask about books. I don't know if, uh, uh, whether technical, like legal or fiction, nonfiction books throughout your life have had an impact on you. If there's something you could recommend or something you could speak to about something that inspired ideas, insights about this world, complicated world of ours. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I'll, I, I'll give you a, a couple. Uh, so one is uh, "Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity" by Richard Warty. He's a he's passed away now, but was a uh, philosopher uh, at some of our major institutions: Princeton, uh, Harvard, um, Stanford. Um, uh, "Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity." At least that's a book that really helped me work through. Um, a series of thoughts. So it it stands for the proposition that uh, that our most deeply held beliefs uh, are contingent. That there, there there's nothing uh, beyond history or prior to socialization that's definitory of the, the of, of the human being. That's Rorty, um, and he says that uh, our most deeply held beliefs are received wisdom and highly contingent along a, a, a number of registers. And he does that, uh, but then goes on to say that uh, he nonetheless uh, can hold strongly held beliefs, recognizing their contingency, but still believes them to be true and accurate. And it helps you to work through uh, what could be an intellectual tension Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, other words, so so you don't delve into one doesn't delve into relativism. Uh, yeah. Everything is okay, but he gives you a vocabulary to think about uh, 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 how to negotiate these 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 realities. Uh, I, do you share this tension? I mean, there there is a real tension. It seems like even like the law, the legal system is all just a construct of our human ideas, yeah. and yet it seems to be. Uh, almost feels fundamental to what a uh, right. <laughs> what yeah, a no, just society is. Yeah, I, I definitely share share the tension and 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 love the, the uh, uh, his his vocabulary and the way he's uh, helped me resolve the 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 tension. So right, I mean, yeah, yeah. So like you know, uh, infanticide, for example, perhaps it's. Uh, socially contingent perhaps it's received wisdom perhaps it's 
anthropological. Uh, you know, we need to propagate the species, and I still think it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and 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 Rorty uh, has, has helped me develop a category to say to 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 say that. No, I can't provide any, in Rorty's words, non-circular theoretical backup mm-hmm. for this proposition. At some point, it's going to run me into in a circularity problem, but that's okay. I'm, I, I, I hold this nonetheless in full recognition of its contingency. But what it does is 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 makes you humble, mm-hmm. and and when you're humble, that's good because you know this notion that ideas are always already in progress never fully formed uh i think is 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 the sort of intellectual i strive to be and if i have a a a sufficient degree of humility that i don't have the final answer capital a then that's going to help me to get to better answers lowercase a and 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 rorty does that. And, and he talks about uh uh, in in the solidarity part of the book, he has this concept of imaginative, uh, uh, the imaginative ability to see other different people as we instead of they. Mm. And I just think it's a beautiful concept. But he talks about this imaginative ability, and it's this active process. So I mean, so that's a book that's done a lot of work uh, uh, for me uh, over the the, the years. Um, uh, Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois uh, was absolutely pivotal, pivotal in my intellectual development. Uh, uh, one of the uh, premier uh, set of essays in the uh, Western literary tradition, and it's a, a deep and profound sociological, uh, philosophical, uh, and historical analysis of the uh, predicament of blacks in America from um, one of our country's greatest polymaths. Uh, it, uh, it's just a, it, it's a beautiful text and, uh, and I go to it uh, yearly. Um, so for somebody like me, so growing up in the Soviet Union, the struggle, the civil rights movement, the struggle of race and all those kinds of things uh, that, that is, you know, it's universal, but it's also very much a, a journey of the United States. It was kind of a foreign thing that I stepped into. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you would recommend somebody like me to read? Or is there other uh, things about race that are good to connect to? Because my, my, my flavor of suffering and just, I'm a Jew as well. Mm-hmm. My flavor has to do with World War II and the studies of that, you right. know, all the injustices there. Yeah. So I'm now stepping into a new set of injustices <laughs> and trying to learn the <laughs> the landscape. I would I, I would say you, uh, uh, anyone is is a better person for having read uh, Du Bois. It's just uh, he's just a remarkable writer uh, and thinker, and it. Uh, uh, I mean, and to the extent you're interested in, in learning another history, he does it in a way that is uh, quite sophisticated. So it's uh, uh, so um, uh, I, it, it's interesting. I was going to give you uh, three books. Uh, I, I I noted the accent with, when I met you, but I didn't know exactly where you're from. Yes. But the uh, the other book I was going to say is uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I've always wanted to go to St. Pete's uh, just to— to sort of see with my own eyes what uh, yeah. the word pictures that 
uh, Dostoevsky created in uh, Crime and Punishment. And, you know, I love others of his stuff, too, the Brothers Karamazov and so forth. But uh, Crime and Punishment, I first read in high school as a junior or senior. And it is a a deep and profound um, meditation on uh, both the meaning and the measure of our lives. And uh, uh, Dostoevsky, uh, obviously, in, in, in conversation with other uh, thinkers, um, uh, really gets at the, uh, the, the crux of a fundamental philosophical problem. What does it mean to be a human being? And, uh, and uh, for that, uh, Crime and Punishment captured me as a teenager, and that's another text that I return to uh, uh, often. We've talked about young people uh, a little bit at the beginning of our conversation. Is there advice that you could give to a young person today thinking about their career, thinking about their life, thinking about uh, making their way in this world? Yeah, sure. I'll share some advice. It actually picks up on a a question we talked about earlier in in the academy and schools. But it's it's some advice that a professor gave to me when I got to Harvard, and it is this, that uh, you have to be willing to come face to face with your intellectual limitations and keep going. And that's it. And it's hard for people. I mean, you mentioned this earlier to to face really difficult tasks to uh, and particularly in these sort of elite spaces where you've excelled all your life and you come to MIT and you're like, wait a minute, I don't understand this. Yeah. Wait, this is hard. I've yeah. never had really, something really hard yeah. before. And there, there are a couple options. And a lot of people will pull back and take the uh, gentleman or gentlewoman's B and, and just go on or risk going out there, giving it your all and still not quite getting it. And that that that's a risk, but it's a risk well worth it uh, because you're just going to be the better person, the better student for it. And, you know, and even outside of the academy, I mean, come come face to face with your uh, fears and keep going and keep going in in life. And you're going to be the better person, the better uh, human being. Yeah, it does seem to be I don't know what it is, but it does seem to be that fear is a good indicator of something you should probably face. <laughs> yes. Like fear kind of shows the way a little bit. Uh, not always. <laughs> you might not want to go into the cage with a lion, but <laughs> uh, but it's um, maybe you should. <laughs> maybe. Uh, let me ask sort of a darker question because we're talking about Dostoevsky. We might as well. <laughs> do you... Uh, do you th- and connected to the uh, freeing innocent people? Do you think about mortality? Do you think about your own death? Are you afraid of death? I, I'm I'm not afraid of of death. I do think about it more now uh, because I'm now in my mid fifties, so I used to not think about it much at all. But uh, uh, the uh, harsh reality is that. I've got more time behind me now than I do in front of me, and it kind of happens all of a sudden. Too, yeah. you realize, wait a minute, I'm, 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 I'm actually on the back nine now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, my mind moves to it from time to time. I don't uh, dwell on it. I'm not afraid of it. Uh, 
my own personal religious commitments. I'm 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 Christian, and my religious uh, uh, commitments uh, buoy me uh, that uh, you know that that death. Uh, and I, I I believe this death is not 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 the end. So I'm not afraid of it. Now, this is not to say that I want to I want to I want to rush to the afterlife. I'm I'm good right here for a long time. And I hope I've got you know. 30, 35, 40 more years to go. Uh, but, um, but, uh, but no, I don't, I don't really, I, I don't fear death. Uh, we're, 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 we're finite creatures. We're, we're all gonna, we're, we're all gonna die. Well, the mystery of it, uh, you know, for, for somebody, at least for me, we human beings want to figure everything out. Uh, whatever the afterlife is, there's still a mystery to it. That, that uncertainty. Yeah. It can be terrifying if you ponder it, but maybe uh, what you're saying is <laughs> uh, you haven't pondered it too deeply so far, and it's worked out pretty good. It's worked out, yeah. No, no, no complaints. <laughs> so you said uh, again, Dostoevsky kind of well, was exceptionally good at uh, getting to the core of what it means to be human. Do you think about like the why of why we're here? the the meaning of this whole uh, existence. Yeah, no, I, I I do. I think, uh, and I actually think that's the purpose of an education. <laughs> uh, what does it mean to be a human being? And in one way or another, uh, we set out to answer those questions, and we do it in a different way. Uh, I mean, some uh, may look to. Uh, philosophy to answer uh, these questions. Why is it in one's personal interest to to um, to do good, to to do just, uh, to do justice? Uh, some may uh, look at it through the economist's lens. Uh, some may uh, look at it through the uh, microscope in the laboratory that the phenomenal world is. Uh, is is the meaning uh, of life. Uh, others may say that that's one uh, vocabulary, that's one d- description, but the poet describes a reality to the same degree as a physicist. Uh, but that's the purpose of, uh, of, of an education. It's to sort of work through these issues. What does it mean to be a, uh, 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 what does it mean to be a human being? And I think it's a fascinating journey. And I think it's a lifelong uh, endeavor to figure out what is the thing, that nugget that makes us uh, human. Do you still see yourself as a student? Of course. Uh, yes. I mean, that's, um, that's the best part about going into, into university teaching. You're, you're, you're a lifelong student. I'm always learning. I learn from my students and with my students and, uh, my colleagues and you you continue to read and 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 learn and and modify opinions and I, I think it's just a wonderful thing. Well, Ron, um, I'm so glad I, that uh, somebody like you is uh, carrying the fire of what uh, is the best of Harvard. So it's a huge honor that you yes, spend so much time, waste so much of your valuable time with me. I really appreciate that Not a waste at all. I think a lot of people love it. Thank you so much for talking today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Ronald Sullivan. And thank you to Brooklyn and Sheets, Wine Access Online Wine Store, Mug Pack Low Carb Snacks, and Blinkist app that summarizes books. Click their links to support this podcast. 
And now, let me leave you with some words from Nelson Mandela. When a man is denied the right to live the life he believes in, he has no choice but to become an outlaw. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.